Well, good morning. My name is Brett Wiley, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Life. And of course, it's Memorial Day weekend, so Andy decided to go globetrot on the lake somewhere. And he said, Brett, you're up this weekend. And he said, I want you to preach on holiness. So I said, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. You're so kind. No, but seriously, we're glad you're here, uh, that you chose to worship with us this morning. We think every week that we gather for worship is crucial and pivotal in God making us holy uh, as we rehearse the gospel together. So if you've been with us over the last few weeks, Kyle, I've got a little bit of uh, feedback echo in my uh, mic here. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, we've been journeying through the first chapter of 1 Peter in a sermon series we have titled Holy Endurance. And this morning, as we turn to verses 13 through 21, we turn to what perhaps could be a really challenging passage. I will tell you that I've wrestled that this sermon was written through blood, sweat, and tears as I was asking the Lord what he had to say to us. Because in some ways, I feel like there's a hundred sermons, maybe 150 sermons in these few verses. So asking, what, what Lord do you have for us this morning? And I think we need the Lord's help. So we bow with me and ask him to be with us. Father, we do, we just ask, we know that where Christians are present, are present, you're there with us, that Jesus, you're with us, Holy Spirit, you are with us. We can, we can know that's true. But Lord, we pray that you'd manifest your presence this morning in such a way that we would know that you are God. We would know that you are holy. We would know that Jesus is real. We would know that what he's done for us has changed everything. And Lord, I, I just admit feeling wholly inadequate this morning. Woe is me, God. I'm, I'm, I'm a man from unclean lips, from a people, from amongst a people of unclean lips. Lord, would you speak still? And would you let these words be your words? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Leviticus 11.45... We're starting with a Leviticus quote, by the way. Uh, in Leviticus 11.45, God says, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. So you must be holy as I am holy, or because I am holy. This call to a life of holiness was a key aspect of God's covenant and relationship with the people of Israel. And in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 15, Peter picks up this same language. And you can see this Exodus framework throughout the, the book of Peter, the letter of Peter. But he picks up this same language. And he says this, But as one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. I wonder how that statement hits you this morning. What was the first feeling that came to you as I read it? Was it defeat? Exhaustion? Despair? Regret? Maybe cynicism? That's impossible. Or maybe even pride? I wonder what even the physical reactions in your body were. For some, 
of us, that statement felt like a chain being dropped on your shoulders, like a weight being laid on you. And all we heard was an impossible expectation, another way in which we don't and can't measure up. Or if you're in the midst of a sin struggle, maybe the first thought or feeling that came to mind was shame. At least if you're anything like me, those are some of the thoughts and feelings that come to mind, right? When we hear this statement, be holy because I am holy. And this, we need to be clear on that. This is how Satan can take a verse, a statement, a truth that's supposed to be empowering, freeing, and life-giving and make it a burden. But this call to holiness is only a burden and a weight that crushes if we get things out of order. And this brings us to our first point this morning, which is really the problem of holiness. What is the problem of holiness? Hebrews 12, 14 puts it succinctly. He says, pursue peace with everyone and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. This is the core problem of the story of Scripture. Why will no one see the Lord without holiness? Because as 1 John 1, 5 and 6 says, or 5 says, God is light. And there's absolutely no darkness in him. He's light. He's absolutely morally perfect and pure and good. And there's no darkness in him. The problem of holiness is that God is perfectly holy and we are not. And without holiness, no one will see God. God's holiness speaks to his utter transcendence, his magnificence, the fact that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. His holiness speaks to his power and his goodness in his absolute moral purity. Holiness is not just an attribute he has, hear this, it's not just an attribute he, at, he has, it's who he is. This is why one of the continual refrains of scripture is there's none like him. There is none like him. So if we are told, be holy in and of ourselves, then that statement can only be a curse or a burden. It can only crush us or push us to trust in ourselves if it's just about us. That's why it's so important that we get the order correctly here in this chapter. Think back on the last few sermons. Remember what Peter's been doing in the first chapter. In the first 12 verses, he's really been establishing his reader's identity. He has been encouraging and comforting these brothers and sisters in Christ who have already been facing suffering and trials for the name of Jesus because they believe in Jesus. He's been encouraging them about what God has done for them and about who they are in Christ. Verse one, they are God's chosen elect. Verse two, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father, sanctified by the Spirit and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Verse three, God has given them new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Verse four, they have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, incorruptible, kept in heaven for them. Verse five, they are being guarded by God's power through faith. Verses six and seven, even the temporary trials they face in this life only serve to prove the character of their faith, which will result in praise and glory and honor at the second coming of Christ. Verse eight, 
through loving and believing in Jesus, they received the goal of their faith, the salvation of their souls. And verses 10 through 12, which Andy preached last week. And by the way, this salvation, this gospel that these Christians have received was prophesied of by the prophets. And it's so glorious, so wonderful, so beautiful, so mysterious that even angels, majestic spiritual beings crane their neck just to try to catch a glimpse of the beauty of it. Now just think with me for a moment. If you heard all the things that I just said, mentioned, and if you believed that they were true of you, I mean, they really believed that, that that's who you were, that that's what your identity was. What would it change about the thoughts and feelings we had when we first read 1 Peter 1.15? What kind of thoughts and feelings would such truth bring to you? Some of, some of the words that come to mind for me are safe, secure, identity, hope, joy. I mean, if I were try, to try to sum, sum up the first 12 verses here, I might say that they are about the unshakable hope and joy that comes with a secure identity and inheritance in Christ. Peter has essentially been saying, no, 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 no matter what's going on around you, no matter what you're facing, this is who you are. This is the most true thing about you. And as we get to verse 13, he starts to make a turn in his letter from the indicative of who we are in Christ to the imperative of what we are called to do. Again, the order is so important here. If verse 15 and 16 came before verses one through 12, then our identity, our salvation and inheritance would be based on the holiness of our conduct and action, our desires. But it is not so. And this is the good news because verses 15 and 16 come after verses 1 through 12. This call to live holy lives and be like God flows out of an unshakable identity and inheritance that is as secure, that is as secure as the place of the risen and ascended Christ at the right hand of the Father. That's how secure our identity is. So God, through the apostle Peter, is telling both his readers and us this morning, this is who you are. You are my ch chosen and beloved and delivered and redeemed people. That is the most true thing about you. And nothing can take that away from you. In light of this new identity, in light of this new reality, so then live. Edmund Clowney sums up the importance of the order we're talking about here by saying this, the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore. Isn't that good? The imperatives of what we're called to do always begin with therefore. Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims until he has celebrated the wonder of God's salvation in Christ Jesus. Without the indicative of what God does, this is the problem of holiness. The imperative is addressed to a helpless sinner, the victim of his illusions, and it becomes a commandment that crushes or that drives to vain and presumptuous efforts. So the problem of holiness is no longer a problem when we learn to rest in the indicative of our secure identity in Christ before we start to walk in the imperative of what Christ has called us to. 
This brings us to our second point this morning, which is the power of holiness. And we're going to actually start at verse 18. We're going to look at the end of the passage and then circle back through the text. Because again, I think order is really important there. And if you get the order um, out of whack, it can lead to lots of things that are dangerous for Christians and have, have pushed tons of people away from the church. So look at verses 18 and 19 with me. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Where does the power of holiness come from? Let's consider Peter's language here. He uses this word redeemed. He says they're redeemed from their empty way of life. The Greek word translated as redeemed here is a term used in the Greco-Roman world to talk about when a slave was freed from slavery by someone purchasing them with a ransom price. So the redemption here is really this picture of, of a slave being freed from slavery by someone paying a ransom price for them. This is why Peter says they were not redeemed with the perishable things like silver or gold. No, their redemption was much more costly. They were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. This lamb language is sacrificial language. It harkens us back to Leviticus and to the Passover and the book of Exodus. When God told Moses that each Israelite family was, was to kill a Passover lamb and to, to spread its blood over the doorposts of their homes so that they would be saved. As God used the blood of the Passover lambs to rescue and deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt, so God uses the blood of the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, the son of God, to redeem out of slavery all those who believe in him. You see, understanding what the power of holiness is comes with understanding what it is that God has redeemed us from. Peter calls it your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors. In verse 14, he calls it their former ignorance. This was life apart from God where they were ruled by sin and self. Paul compares it to slavery in Romans chapter six. He writes, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless. Did you hear that? I don't think some of us really believe that, that Christ has rendered the body ruled by sin powerless. So that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now verse 22. But now since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification and the outcome is eternal life. Commentator Karen Job explains how the redemption of a slave would normally work in the Greco-Roman world. She says this, she says, the slave would receive his or her freedom after depositing money in the temple of a god or goddess. Money that would have then be paid via the temple treasury to the slave's owner with the thought that the god or the goddess was buying the slave. So, so, so understand this. The person would be completely free in the eyes of society and the eyes of their former owner. 
but would be considered a slave of the God or goddess who purchased them. Don't you see what Peter is doing here with this imagery? He is saying that we were enslaved to an empty way of life that was ruled by sin and self. But God in his incredible mercy saw us in our helpless state and redeemed, delivered, freed us through the precious blood of Jesus. Now get this, we have been completely freed. I don't think we believe this. We have been completely freed. Sin no longer reigns in our life. Even if we still struggle with indwelling sin at the moment is no longer the ruling power of our lives. While we are on this side of heaven, sin might still be in the car, but it's not in the driver's seat. Christ is now the one who reigns in our hearts and lives. As Paul so often says about himself in his letters, we've become bond servants or slaves of Jesus. Now, if that language is strange to our modern ears, it's just the New Testament's way of explaining in human terms how we've moved from being dominated and ruled by sin and self without any power to change ourselves to being dominated by Christ and love and freedom with real power to live different lives, real power to live changed lives, to live holy lives. This is the power of holiness, that through the blood of Christ, we've been made personally holy before God. So much so that Paul could write in Colossians 1, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Isn't that incredible? No, seriously, I know you hear the gospel, so stay with me. Isn't that incredible? This is what it means that we've been redeemed from our empty way of life inherited from our ancestors with the precious blood of Christ. We've been made positionally holy through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And because of that, now we're actually free to live holy lives. Now, someone in here is probably thinking to themselves right now, man, Brett is doing everything he can not to say that our conduct matters in living holy lives. Well, first of all, that's not true. We'll get there. But second, the reason that I'm painstakingly trying to help us understand that the order of Peter's words in, first, in chapter one matters and that the real power of holiness comes not from behavior modification, but from the finished work of Christ on our behalf is because I think at least one of the reasons that there's so many who are walking away from the faith or have walked away from the faith it's because for too long, some in the church were telling people that the way you change, the way you live and grow in the Christian life is by not drinking, not smoking, not having sex before marriage, not hanging out with certain people, et cetera, et cetera. And that what you're supposed to do is have 15 minute quiet times, go to enough Bible studies, attend church and look a certain way. And that's really what it means to be a Christian. To be sure, there are things in that list that are wise and biblical things we should do and shouldn't do. But hear me on this. The gospel is not do certain things and don't do certain things and then God will love you and accept you and allow you to live with him forever. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not do or do not. The gospel is done. It's the announcement that the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God, did through his life, death, and resurrection what we could never do. 
and that he gives us his righteousness and holiness, that which we could never, through his righteousness and holiness, that which we could never have on our own. Listen, he who was perfectly holy died in our place so that we who are utterly unholy might become holy like him. That is the power of holiness. We don't become holy by doing and not doing. We become holy by trusting in what Jesus has done for us. And in that positional holiness, that secure identity of being redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, we can now turn to the path of holiness. As we consider the path of holiness, let's look at verses 13, 14, and then 17. And I want to make just a few observations. Again, there's so much that could be said here. You need to meditate on these verses. But what, what can we say and observe today? Here are the verses. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. If you appeal, this is skipping ahead to verse 17, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. Let's be clear again. God is the one who has caused us to be born again. God is the one who has redeemed us from slavery to sin through the precious blood of Christ. God is the change agent in the process of holiness. He is the one who ultimately grows and changes us. But that does not mean that we are passive or that we don't have a role. We cannot make ourselves grow in holiness. Trying to make ourselves grow is a lot like the kid who hangs upside down, hoping they'll get a little bit taller. Or it's like a plant that thinks it can grow on its own without soil or the sun, it's not possible. But we can put ourselves on the path of holiness where God changes us. Do you, do you see what I'm saying there? We can put ourselves on the path where God molds us and shapes us. So what does this look like? I think what we see in Peter's words here is that putting ourselves on the path of holiness is mostly about who or what is getting our worship and who or what is shaping our desires. Notice verse 17, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially, this is prayer language, calling on the Father, according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. Your word for reverence there might be translated in your translation as reverent fear. Reverence to who? Reverence to God, the Father. This is language of worship and awe and devotion. The Christian life is a life of worship and reverence to God. It's about being wholly devoted to God. And this more than anything else, notice that, this more than anything else will set us apart as strange during the in-between time between Christ's first coming and second coming. Strange. These people who worship Jesus are strange. I think this is what Paul is getting at in Romans 12, 1, when he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is the life of reverence 
And therefore, this is the life of holiness. In view of God's mercy, in view of everything we just saw in the first half of chapter one, we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices. We're called to live lives of holiness, holy and pleasing to God. Listen, did you know that you are what you worship? We become what we worship. What we are most devoted to is what will shape us the most. Think about that for a minute. What we're most devoted to is what will shape us the most. It's what we will give our time to. It's what we'll think about. It's what we'll give money to. It's what we'll neglect other things for. Is that Christ for you? Or is that something else? For me, I know if we're honest, what we worship, what we're giving our reverence to, even as Christians, is often not God. What is that person or thing for you right now? What is the thing that gets your most devotion? I'm glad LeBron got beat out of the playoffs, so no longer is it LeBron and the Lakers. <laughs> but seriously, what is getting the most of your attention right now? Despite the fact that we've been freed from the power of sin and slavery, sometimes we still go back to these things, don't we? Paul knew this was a danger. That's what he said in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ sets us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. I gotta be honest with you guys, sometimes the yoke of slavery feels more comfortable to me than the yoke of freedom. Sometimes it's more natural for me. Idols of comfort and pleasure are more natural than the yoke of freedom. Hey, actually come and be with me, Brett. Jesus is saying, but I choose other things sometimes. Paul says you're free. Live like it. Don't go back to where you are. Or where you were. We saw this in the story of the Exodus with the Israelites, didn't we? I mean, God miraculously frees them from 400 years of slavery through incredible miraculous plagues, you know, parting the Red Sea, uh, through the Passover lamb. But pretty shortly after that, as Moses is leading them through the wilderness, they complain, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the, land of Egypt, in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. What are they saying? They're Brett Wiley on a long road trip saying, when are we going to stop for snacks? But seriously, they're like, I know we were in slavery back there, but we had a lot of meat to eat and bread. Maybe that was better than what we're doing now. Humans are fickle people, are we not? And I think the battle to stay on the path of holiness, the battle to keep our worship and reverence set on God is really a battle of our desires. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Every single person in here has desires of their former ignorance. Desires that shaped who and what you worshiped before you came to believe in Jesus and the gospel. And just because we become a Christian does not mean that those desire, desires go away fully. Yes, God gives us new birth through Jesus. And with that new birth comes new hearts and with new hearts come new affections and new desires. So in Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we do for the first time in our lives have real freedom and real power to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. But even though Jesus makes us 
positionally holy and righteous before God in the moment we trust him for salvation, and he does, we're not actually and practically holy yet. That is why Peter has to call us. Why else would he have to call us to a life of holiness? If God just made us totally holy in that moment, then there'd be no, we don't, we're already there. We don't have to work towards this. We don't have to walk in this. No, Peter says, no, you need to come towards holiness. I've declared you holy. Now walk towards your identity. Sanctification is the lifelong process of being made more and more like God until we see him face to face when we will be made perfectly holy. So our holiness, like the kingdom, has an already but not yet reality. And the path to holiness is daily fighting to keep Jesus at the center of our worship and desires. Let me close this point by saying that this fight is real and it takes intentional action and effort. Peter knows this. Look at verse 13 again. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The phrase minds for action is a Greek phrase that literally means gird your loins. It's this Greco-Roman picture of a man taking his long robes or the long uh, part of his cloak and tucking it into his belt so that his legs are free to move whether he's going to go work or whether he was going to run or whether he was going to go into battle. Gird your loins. Get ready for action. And sober-minded means to have a clear focus, not foggy, to be self-controlled, to have a singular focus on Christ. This is active language. It's not casual or passive. What Peter is saying is that keeping yourself on the path of holiness doesn't just happen. As Christians, let's be clear, we are not called to sit idly and just wait for Jesus to come back. Well, I'm good. I'm just going to wait. He's coming. No, we're actually called to gird our loins, be sober-minded, and walk after him. We're called through the power of the Holy Spirit to actually fight against the desires of our former ignorance and to keep Jesus at the center of our worship. This takes intentionality. Why? Why does it take intentionality? Because as Peter is going to say just a few chapters later, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Friends, I don't know if this is too supernatural a thought to us as modern ears, but, but what we need to know that biblical Christianity says that we have a real enemy who is actively and constantly working against us. He is actively working to push us off the path of holiness, to tempt us with our former desires and to cause us to worship created things and not the creator. So what does it look like to engage in this battle for our worship and desires? There's so many things we could say. I think one thing that's helpful is Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this age. Don't be conformed, but be transformed, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and, and the perfect will of God. Listen, especially for a Christian reading Peter's letter in the first century in the Roman Empire, while we don't think there was state-sanctioned uh, persecution in the church yet, there were for sure things that, that were trials, there were hardships about following Jesus here. 
loss of reputation, loss of honor in an honor and shame culture, potentially loss of business and work. There are all kinds of pressures to conform. No, 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 I need to be more like the culture. No, I just need to do what everybody else is doing. This is too hard. If you think, you're, you think it's hard now, I'm just telling you, it was hard back then, really hard. So how do we not be conformed to this present age? How do we not just assimilate to culture? Because as, as Peter says, we're strangers. We're supposed to look strange to other people. Well, one of the ways is by renewing our mind. Because as we renew our mind, we are living into the new desires that God has given us. You know these things. This looks like spending time listening to the voice of God through his word. Did you hear what I didn't say? I didn't say just studying your Bible. I said listening to the voice of God through his word. It looks like making, attending worship personally and as a family a priority because we need to have the gospel sung over us. I don't know, I was... I was really nervous about this sermon for some reason, uh, for a lot of reasons. And as Zach was singing, man, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. That just spoke to me. What am I doing sitting here in fear? He's given me a spirit of love and power, not timidity. So I need it sung over me. It, it looks like surrounding yourself with at least a few people who will gospel you when you sin. I'm just telling you, if you don't have this, you will not survive the battlefield of life who will extend grace to you and acknowledge your, when you acknowledge your sin, and they'll point you back to Jesus. I didn't say, we'll just say, hey, it's okay. I said, we'll point you back to Jesus. Hey, get back up, walk back after him. I'm walking with you. You're not alone in it. Keep fighting. It looks like keeping in step with the spirit through an active prayer life. I don't get this. I really don't think I get this. Like prayer is supposed to be dependence, dependent on him on a moment by moment basis. And it looks like believing the gospel is true. That's funny, right? But there are times when I am going through a hard moment or when I can only see negativity or when I'm struggling with sin, I literally share the gospel with myself. I, I try to think as clearly and as basically as I can. I try to just repeat the gospel to myself and go, no, no, Brett, it's really true. You're really saved. Jesus has really declared you righteous. You're really holy before God. You're really going to see him one day, and we're really going to live with him forever. That's really true. Not because of you, but because of what Jesus has done. More than anything, pursuing holiness looks like fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because I'm telling you, just focusing on our sin and saying, I'm going to stop doing this will never change you. But looking at Jesus and fixing our eyes on him will change you because you will grow in your affection to him and lessen your affections towards these former desires. Now, those things are not just a list of things we do to make God love us. They're some of the ways we live out our identity as redeemed People. There are some of the ways that we fight to keep Jesus at the center of our worship and desires. What about you? What are those desires of your former ignorance that still pull at you? What are those things that still your worship and reverence from God? Maybe you feel like you're trying to, trying to fight to stay on the path of holiness right now. But you're weary and you're not sure you can keep going. Let's close by considering the promise of holiness. I begin this sermon by reading 1 Peter 15 and 16 and asking what you felt or thought. I want to read it again. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. 
I asked you earlier what you felt or thought when you heard that read. If you felt exhaustion or shame, if you felt simply a burden or a weight that crushes. But I want to close by asking you to see this verse, these verses as a promise and not a command. What if we saw these verses as a promise and not a command? Think about what we've been talking about this whole sermon. Peter has been telling his readers that this is their identity and that their identity and inheritance is totally secure in Jesus, that it is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for him. And in verse 13, he says, to set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word used for hope here is not the way we use the word hope. See, we say, thing, we say things like, I hope I get that promotion at work, or I hope the Arkansas Razorbacks win the College World Series. But really what we mean is we wish that happens. This is not the way Paul, Peter uses hope here. This is not the way uh, the New Testament uses it. The word for hope in the New Testament carries with it a meaning of assurance and certainty. Assurance and certainty. So Peter is telling his readers that their future and, etern and eternity is certain. And that they should live with the full assurance that the dominant reality of their future is grace. It's grace. They will be with Jesus in the end. And what will happen? What will happen when we meet Jesus, when we see him face to face? This is what the Apostle John says about that day. Dear friends, we are God's children. That is our identity right now. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, when he returns, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. What will happen on that day? As we see him, we will, we will, we will be holy because he is holy. Do you believe that this morning? Weary Christian, can you receive that as a promise? Struggling Christian, can you let that be both a comfort and a motivator to keep fighting for holiness, to stay on the path of holiness? Because as Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. He will carry it on to the day of completion. He will. Our heavenly father will get all of his children home. How, no matter how difficult the road may seem in this life. Maybe right now, the fight to stay on the path of holiness is really intense. Maybe you feel like more than ever, not giving your worship to those former desires is, is, is impossible. So much so that while you know in your heart of hearts that you have genuine faith in Jesus, you still question whether you've experienced new birth and redemption as Peter talks about here. Let Bishop J.C. Ryle's words be a gauge for you. We may take comfort about our souls if we know anything of an inward fight and conflict. It is the invariable companion of genuine Christian holiness. Do we find in our hearts, our heart of hearts, a spiritual struggle? Are we conscious of two principles within us contending for mastery? Do we feel anything of war? Well, we thank God for it. It's a good sign. 
It's strong, probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. What is Ryle saying? He's saying if you struggle against sin, if you wrestle against sin, if you even try to deny those things, then take heart because dead people don't struggle. Corpses don't fight. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses. That's the reality outside of Christ. There was no life. There was no struggle. If you struggle, it's because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. It's because he is empowering you to walk in freedom and say no to sin and yes to Jesus. If you feel that war raging in you, then I would say take heart. Take heart. Because it's God actually sanctifies us. He makes us holy as we struggle towards him. Do you hear my words? Towards him. I'm not talking about living in it. I'm not talking about enjoying it. I'm talking about struggling towards him. So weary Christian, hear this. If you find that you're struggling against sin, not just giving yourself fully to it and joyfully practicing it, but actually struggling and wrestling against it, this is how God makes us holy. And his call to be holy like him is also a promise in the end. All of his redeemed children will be holy as he is holy. Keep fighting. Keep struggling. He is working to make you like him. And he will complete the good work he began in you. He will get us home. Pray with me. Father, I just pray for anyone in the room who's, who feels anything but holy this morning. Maybe, Father, they do, for the first time, need to experience new birth, Lord. They need to experience that redemption that comes through the precious blood of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would move in their hearts and do that. But, but for the weary Christian, the one who is in Christ and feels the weight of their sin this morning, that, that feels weary, Lord, would you remind them that you are with them, shaping them and making them, and that you will and are making them holy as you are holy. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.